Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, a treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, Dr. Bergsma. Thank you, Father. I appreciate it. All right. Well, we're going to jump into the uh, Word of God because, as somebody famously said, man does not live by bread alone, but uh, from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we're going to transition to talking about uh, the words that come forth from the mouth of God. And uh, tonight... We're picking up once more on Matthew, and last night we spent most of the evening talking about Matthew the man, and tonight we're going to be talking about Matthew the book, looking at an overview of this uh, wonderful gospel that the church offers us for uh, year A, uh, which is the liturgical year that we are in, and uh, we're going to have a great time. All right, I'll have a little prayer too, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit on us as we ponder your word. And thank you for your servant, Matthew, who gave us such a beautiful account of the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, and in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we're talking about Matthew, the book tonight. And so I uh, want to jump into that and recap some of the unique features of the Gospel of Matthew. Um so we looked at these a little bit last night, and um, and we talked about how Matthew differs from some of the other Gospels. Um, so date and place of writing, you know, where did Matthew write his Gospel? Somewhere in either the Holy Land or uh, Syria is usually proposed. It's called Syro-Palestine, that kind of, um, you know, the, the Near East is characterized by what's called the Fertile Crescent. You know, it starts down by Egypt, and it moves up the Mediterranean, up into Lebanon, and then over into Syria, and then down Mesopotamia. It looks like a boomerang with the bend pointed up. And that's where you can grow stuff. And uh, in Israel and Lebanon and a little ways into Syria, you can grow things because of rainwater. And then once you get into Mesopotamia, you can grow stuff because of irrigation. But in um, that uh, that area from uh, southern Israel or Judea all the way up to Damascus, including parts of Lebanon, 
that area included a lot of uh, Jewish uh, settlers. And um, because of the Jewish nature of Matthew's gospel, it's often thought that he wrote it somewhere in that area. There are indications in the gospel of Matthew that the temple was still standing and was available to people. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records our Lord saying that if you're standing at the altar, and that would be the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go be reconciled first with your brother. Well, that statement, of course, implies that the temple and the altar was still standing when the Gospel of Matthew was written. If it had all been torn down, Matthew might have inserted a little explanatory note there or a comment or something like that. But uh, that's just one instance of several that seemed to indicate that the temple was still standing and that people who are reading the gospel were able to travel to the temple. So somewhere there in, um, in, the, in the Holy Land or nearby is the likely place. And the church fathers tell us that uh, Matthew wrote while Peter and John were in, uh, I'm sorry, well, uh, Peter and Paul, excuse me, were preaching in Rome. That would be in the early 60s. And so that's a, a likely date for the Gospel of Matthew and uh, location for his writing it. Let's talk about uh, some of the um, unique features of Matthew's gospel. So we mentioned these last night, but it went by really quickly, so it doesn't hurt to repeat a little bit. Matthew's the second longest of the gospels, just shy of Luke, uh, who has 19,000, uh, Matthew at 18,000. And there's a strong relationship between Matthew and Mark. Um, Matthew contains about 90% of the content of Mark's gospel, oftentimes with very close wording. Really, it's even more than that. It's more like 94% of Mark uh, is also found in Matthew. Uh, and then about 25% of Matthew is in common with Luke. So about a quarter of Luke and a quarter of Matthew are very similar, if not identical. So there's definitely a relationship between the Gospels. Um, the most ancient explanation of this is that Matthew wrote first, uh, and then Mark um, uh, wrote a short synopsis of Matthew's Gospel, and then uh, Luke uh, used both. That's called uh, St. Augustine's uh, theory of the authorship of the Gospels. Um, I, I'm no great authority on this, but my personal view is that uh, Matthew, uh, who is recorded as writing first, maybe had access to Mark's notes when he was composing his own gospel. He said, hey, Mark, can I, can I borrow your notes of Peter's preaching? Because it's a strong patristic tradition that Mark had written down the preaching of Peter about the life of Jesus. And I think that Matthew asked to borrow those, uh, some of those notes and then combine it with his own notes. And uh, that uh, produces the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And then later, Mark published his own account independently. And uh, that's why uh, Mark is uh, not remembered as having published or written uh, the first gospel. Um, okay, Matthew has the most quotes of the Old Testament of any of the gospels. I mentioned that before, 50 explicit quotes. And when you add allusions and echoes and other kinds of indirect ways of referencing the Old Testament, about a total of 200. And as we're going to see in a moment where we sketch out the gospel, we're going to see how orderly 
how thematic and systematic it is. And it includes all the uh, important uh, moments of our Lord's life. It includes his birth and his baptism and the transfiguration and uh, his major miracles and obviously his passion, death, and resurrection. So it gives you a very uh, well-rounded account of the life of our Lord. All right, let's look at some examples of Matthew's peculiar style. So this is a question, you know, how is Matthew different? What is, what is the different spin that Matthew puts on uh, the accounts of our Lord's ministry? Well, here's two examples that are very interesting. Matthew 2, 14 says about St. Joseph. And uh, by the way, Matthew gives us more information about St. Joseph than any other gospel. So we're very indebted to him for that. And if indeed St. Uh, Joseph was his uncle, that would uh, go a long way to explaining why that is the case. But speaking of St. Joseph in Matthew 2.14, St. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Let me give a little ex explanation of that. Why go to Egypt? Well, very simple reason from a natural uh, level. And that is Alexandria, Egypt, the capital city, was the New York of its day. It was the city that had the largest Jewish population outside the land of Israel. Um, and, you know, for decades when, you know, a, a lot of Israelis have close ties with the United States and the Jewish community in New York has very close ties to uh, the Jewish community of the land of Israel. And so, it's often been the case when there's been unrest in Israel, some Israelis will fly to New York and just wait out the unrest and then go back when it's over. And in the first century, that was the case with Alexandria, which was a center of finance. It was a center of culture. It was a center of Greek-speaking uh, Greek Jewish uh, civilization. And about half of the city uh, was of Jewish ethnicity. So if, if St. Joseph is looking for a place to go to where he can just get lost and he doesn't have to learn, uh, you know, a different culture and he'll fit right in, why he can just go down to Alexandria, Egypt, and that's probably what he did. And of course, in terms of God's providence, there's a deeper reason. Jesus is Israel in a person. He's the embodiment of Israel. And so just as Israel had to go down to Egypt in the book of Exodus and then come back out, so Jesus has to repeat that experience in his own self. Just as later, uh, when you know Israel went 40 years in the wilderness, our Lord goes 40 days in the wilderness. And that's what we are reliving right now during Lent. Well, getting back to this, so they remain down in Egypt until Herod dies. And, and then uh, Matthew explains, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, brothers and sisters, is that that's the Hebrew reading. That's the Hebrew reading of Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, Greek-speaking Jews used the ancient Septuagint translation that is still used by the Greek Orthodox Church for their Old Testament. Very ancient translation into Greek goes back to 250 BC. That's what's usually quoted in the New Testament, but in Hosea 11.1, 1, the Septuagint has, out of Egypt, I have called his son. 
So it's quite distinct. Uh, there's a little bit, we call that a variant. And so Matthew is quoting from clearly the Hebrew text of that passage uh, there in Matthew 2, 14 and 15. And then um, let's look at this next one too, which is a real puzzler and really threw me for a loop when I was a kid. Because Matthew 2, 23 says, he went and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And when I was a kid, I would rack my brain because I could not remember any place in the Old Testament where it said he will be called a Nazarene. And I would bust out my concordance and try to see if I could find this. And there's no verse in the Old Testament that says this. Like, what is going on here? Well, it's it's confused, see, because we're reading in English, we're reading it uh first of all in greek that's the language that our standard copy of matthew is in and then it's translated to english and so we missed the point but this goes back to hebrew okay it all goes back to the hebrew word netzer netzer is the hebrew word for branch and there's a a handful of famous prophecies about the messiah where he's called a branch most notably Isaiah 11, verse 1 says that a branch shall spring forth from the stump of Jesse. And then it goes on to describe in various glorious terms this son of David who will come one day to save his people. And so that led to uh, one of the titles of the Messiah, which was the branch. And we actually sing that, uh, you know, in... Um, uh, o come, O come, Emmanuel, the O antiphons re refer to the branch of David. Sometimes, though, it's called a rod or whatever, so the translations can be different, but it's the Netzer or the branch. And um, so now Netzer is the root of the name of the town of Netzereth, or we would say Nazareth. And uh, in Hebrew, Netzereth comes off basically as like Branchton, okay? We would say, you know, in America, we'd say Branchton, right? Uh, the town of the branch. And so this is Matthew showing kind of the poetic providence of God. How could we have missed it? The one who was to be called the branch came from Branchton. I mean, it's so obvious in hindsight. It's like, like you, you can't make this stuff up. You know, it's like a, it's like a mystery writer. Uh, or something like that. So he went and dwelt in a city called Branchton, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called the branch. And I, I think the, the Greek is uh, struggling here to render the original statement, you know, he shall be called the Netzer in Hebrew. It comes off as Nazarios uh, in the Greek, but that's what's going on. He shall be called a Nazarene is, uh, is summing up uh, the these prophecies that spoke of the branch who was to come. Okay, this is and, and Jerome mentioned these two passages actually last night um, and uh, explained how they indicated that Matthew was referring to Hebrew. So there's actually several places in Matthew where if you don't know Hebrew, you kind of get lost in translation, as they say. Let's look at another example of Matthew's style, which shows some of the concerns that were on his heart. So in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 12, we have the famous account of the healing of the man with the withered hand. And uh, the first three Gospels all record this episode. 
But only Matthew includes Jesus's defense of himself uh, to the Pharisees when he heals this man with a withered hand. And I mentioned this last night, but he says, what man of you, if he has one of uh, one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, Mark and Luke drop this, but this was of great concern to Matthew because not only was he probably raised in a Pharisaic household, but he was also trying to write to Jews that were familiar with this way of arguing from God's law. And this, uh, this form of argument where you move from the lesser to the greater is one of the dozen or so established forms of, we might call it a syllogism, kind of the established patterns of logic that uh, rabbis used to argue from the law of Moses. And um, it's characterized by this, this phrase, how much more then? You know, so if you do it in this small instance, how much more in this greater instance? And if you do a search on how much more in Matthew, you'll pop up several of these instances where Jesus uses this classic form of rabbinic argumentation. And we forget this, but remember that, yes, our Lord was the Son of God, and he is the royal son of David, but he was also a very good rabbi, and he knew how to argue, and he knew how to do rabbinic exegesis, and he's really showing his chops here, um, making strong points from Scripture, and Matthew includes this because he knows this is a really strong argument that our Lord has, and he also wants his Jewish readers to understand that Jesus was not, as his critics described him, some kind of um, laissez-faire Sabbath breaker, um, you know, somebody who didn't respect the law of God and didn't respect theological um, logic, if you will. No, indeed, Jesus knew what he was doing and could give a theological defense of his actions, even within a Jewish context. We see this also with the account of the plucking of the grain on the Sabbath, um, all three gosp first Gospels have this, but only Matthew includes, again, our Lord's defense of his actions from a theological perspective. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Actually, this is the same form of argumentation as our last example. It's from lesser to greater. Uh, I believe it's called in Hebrew the Gezerah Shavah. But again, from lesser to greater. And um, in our previous example, the phrase was how much more. Here, it's something greater than. Okay, so uh, for the sake of the temple, the priests are allowed to work on the Sabbath day. But Jesus is greater than the temple. Now, this is amazing, brothers and sisters, because in a Jewish context, there is nothing greater than the temple save God himself. And so if you're reading this as a Jew, and if you stop to think about it for a moment, you realize that Jesus is quietly claiming divinity. And a lot of people say that, oh, Jesus only claims to be divine in the Gospel of John. You know, that's where it's very explicit, uh, you know, where uh, Thomas says, my Lord and my God at the end of the Gospel of John. And, you know, but the other, the other Gospels portray Jesus just as a man. 
you know, I've heard that. I've even heard scholars say things like that in, in very convoluted jargon. But that's all mistaken. If you're reading like a Jew, uh, all of the Gospels uh, are clearly claiming Jesus to be divine. And, and this is a good instance for Matthew. When he says something greater than temple is here, you got to think for a moment. Uh, and, 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 and Jesus is intentional. You, you guys have heard of the Socratic method of teaching. That's like where you, you lead people so that they put two and two together and they get four before you tell them it's four. You know, well, Jesus does that, you know, uh, himself. Um, he allows his listeners to put two and two together. So we think, gosh, what's he talking about? What could possibly be greater than the temple? The only thing greater than the temple could be God. And then he says, well, something greater than the temple is here. Well, what could be around here? That could be God. Oh, maybe it's the guy who's working miracles and doing things that only God could do, like forgive sins and cast out demons. Right. So again, so you 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 get it. You know, you you get the joke, you get the punchline of these subtle statements. And then Jesus says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And this is Jesus again making a rabbinic point. You see, the rabbis were were essentially lawyers and they were experts at interpreting the law, and they would try to figure out what laws were more basic and more fundamental and what laws were more trivial. And the more fundamental laws uh, kind of uh, override the more trivial ones if there's a kind of conflict. So, you know, when you got an animal in a pit, you've got, uh, you know, mercy as one principle, showing mercy to a living creature, and then you have Sabbath observance. It's like, which, you know, which is higher? And uh, Jesus, in fact, most of the Jewish tradition said mercy is higher than uh, the, the details of Sabbath observance. And that's also what Jesus is saying there. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is citing that from the scriptures as a principle that the principle of mercy outweighs um, like liturgical observance. You know, not that liturgical observance is unimportant, but uh, if there's a conflict with the with the issue of mercy, then one acts on mercy first, and then on um, you know uh, liturgical scruples. Okay, let's look at the beginning of Matthew's gospel because, well, really the beginning and the end, because you know the the title of this retreat is uh, you know Thy Kingdom Come. And Matthew is really a, a gospel about the coming of the kingdom to earth. And these royal themes of Jesus as king, who's come to bring the kingdom, uh, run from the very beginning to the very end of the gospel. So I just have the beginning and the end here. Matthew 1.1 starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Boy, there is a lot packed into this verse, and I can't go into it all tonight. But I'm just going to focus on the middle piece there, the son of David. That's key. Now, little known fact, we often think that Jesus was the only descendant of David that was living in the first century. It's like he's the last survivor of the royal house. Well, if we think about that for a minute. Like, no, that can't be the case because his mother was descended from David and St. Joseph was descended of David and they had relatives. And so surely they're relatives. So, yeah, that's right. So the whole town of Bethlehem, the whole town of Nazareth was probably filled with descendants of the royal house. In fact, 
descendants of the house of David who came from back from Babylon probably settled or resettled those two towns. And so when it says the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, notice it doesn't say a son of David, okay, but it uses son of David as a title. To be called son of David as a title means you are the heir, okay? Now, there's a lot of people running around that have the blood of the Habsburgs in them. You know, the Habsburgs was the ruling Catholic dynasty of Europe for centuries and centuries. Uh, but, you know, and a lot of people have their blood. But there's only one guy, and his name is Karl of Habsburg. He's an Austrian politician, and he's actually the heir to the throne of most of Europe, back from when the Habsburg controlled most of Europe. You know, he's still alive. And if if they were in power, he would have the throne, and he would be like ruling most of Europe. Well, St. Joseph was like that. You know, there were lots of uh, descendants of David running around, but Joseph was the heir. He would have been ruling if the Davidic dynasty was in power, and he passes the throne to his adopted son, Jesus, just like Augustus Caesar passed the throne, I'm sorry, Julius Caesar passed the throne of the Roman Empire to his adopted son, Julius, it's, uh, you know, providence of God that these two, you know, uh, transfers of the throne, one of the Roman Empire and one of the throne of David, were transferred at about the si same time between uh, foster fathers and adopted sons. Kind of a kind of a beautiful parallel there. But then that made Jesus son of David. So he's the heir to the throne. That's the main point. And um, wh what we need to see, too, is that the kingdom that Jesus establishes is the church. We're going to talk about that more. But uh, what Jesus is doing during his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew is reestablishing the kingdom of David, but he's doing it now as a spiritual kingdom. When I call it a spiritual kingdom, though, I don't mean that it doesn't have flesh and blood to it or that it can't be identified or it doesn't have an outward appearance. It definitely does. Um, you know, real flesh and bone people belong to this kingdom, and it does things on earth, and it can create institutions and so on. But it is primarily a spiritual kingdom marked by the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what, when, we, when we move through Matthew's gospel, we'll see that, for example, when we get to chapter 10, Jesus chooses 12 men and sends them out to the house of Israel. There is an earlier parallel to that in the Old Testament, and that's in 1 Kings chapter 4, where Solomon, the first son of David to reign on his throne, chose out 12 officers and placed them over all Israel. And see, what Jesus is doing there in Matthew chapter 10 is uh, choosing uh, 12 new officers over the new kingdom of uh, David and sending them out, commissioning them to now begin to rule on his behalf. They are his 12 princes uh, on the throne. And then later in Matthew 16, he chooses a new royal steward. Uh, you know, Isaiah 12, 12 um, talks about the royal steward who exercised the keys of the palace. In Matthew 16, 18 and 19, Jesus gives the royal keys to Peter as the new royal steward, and so on it goes. Jesus is setting back up the kingdom of David as in a transformed way. Uh, it's a real kingdom. It's got flesh and blood human beings in it, 
And yet it's also a spiritual kingdom. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of David, just as Jesus is fully God and fully man. Well, let's look at the end of the Gospel of Matthew now. We looked at the the royal opening, which is uh, followed by the genealogy, of course. And then when we go to the end of Matthew, um, we see this encounter between the risen Lord and the apostles. And it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wow. That is quite the statement. It's basically, you know, dudes, I am the king of everything. <laughs> I am the czar of all. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, but remember, it's not bragging if it's true. Okay. So, I mean, Jesus is a challenging figure for anybody. If you say this and this is not true, you know, this is, you have delusions of grandeur, okay? Jesus can only say this with a straight face because it is true. He is the cosmic king. I mean, this is important, brothers and sisters. I mean, we've got to break people out of the mode of thinking that Jesus is just some nice teacher like, Guru Nanak or uh, the Buddha or, you know, some other, you know, religious founder. He's not just a nice teacher. I mean, look at this outlandish claim. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so I am the cosmic king. The background of this, brothers and sisters, is Daniel 9. uh, This amazing vision that the prophet Daniel had centuries before where he saw the Ancient of Days seated on a throne, and then one like a son of man come riding on the clouds, and the Ancient of Days gave the Son of Man all the kingdoms on the earth. And so uh, Jesus is you know, alluding to that in Matthew 28, 18. And he's also drawing on Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 promises to the Davidic king, At the end of the psalm, it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. And Psalm 2 is one of the most important psalms for all the Gospels, but especially uh, Matthew's Gospel. Um, Psalm 2 says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Um, And it also says, I will tell the decree of the Lord, You are my son. This day I have begotten you. And all these things are said to David and to all of David's heirs after him, basically to what we call the Davidic king or the Davidide is the term that's often used. And so Psalm 2 makes these crazy promises to the son of David that he's going to be son of God and, uh, and rule over all the nations just for the asking. And so when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's basically saying, hey, I'm the son of David. I've asked the father, like Psalm 2, 9 and following says, and he's given me the nations as my heritage, the ends of the earth, my possession. And then he goes on to commission his princes, his 12 princes now in Matthew 28, 19, and says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we talked about this last night. Notice that key line is 
not simply that I'm teaching them, that we should teach them all that Christ commanded, but teach them to observe. Okay, the like, you know, the difference is this, between this is like having a classroom where you sit and you talk about, uh, you know, the properties of H2O and all the unique qualities that H2O has, you know, and and uh, you get people to be like academic experts on water. We call people like that hydrologists, you know, people that are just like water experts. But, you know, we're not called to create hydrologists. We are called to create swimmers, people that can swim, okay? So hydrologists is teaching them all that I commanded you. Swimmers is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And, and this is this is key in any teaching role that we have in the church. Okay, I promised you tonight that we were going to do some stick figures. So pull out your pieces of paper, get your writing utensils out, and uh, gentlemen, start your pencils. We are going to draw. Okay, everybody's got to draw. No passivity here at all. So get out your paper, orient your paper, landscape, and then over on the left side of your paper, I want you to draw a Christmas star, just like this one that's appearing on your screen. And uh, the Christmas star is the beginning of Matthew. Matthew chapters one and two are the account of Christmas. And now on the far opposite side of your paper, uh, I want you to draw an Easter cross. Um, I have to make mine kind of tall and thin to fit into my uh, viewing area there. And uh, that reminds us that the last three chapters of Matthew's gospel, 26 through 28, are basically Easter. So the gospel of Matthew is a movement from Christmas to Easter. It's like the, the central arc, the central narrative arc of the liturgical calendar, which is why it makes for such good liturgical reading and proclamation. Okay, so that's the beginning and the end of Matthew. We're going to journey from the birth to the resurrection, which is really from birth to rebirth, because our Lord's resurrection was a rebirth or being born again. And we can share that being born again through baptism, but that's a talk for another night. But um, as we move through Matthew's gospel, there is a shadowy figure who's only rarely mentioned, but is always kind of present in the back of Matthew's mind. And I'm going to draw this shadowy figure way in the background, and I'm going to let you try to figure out who that guy is. And I know a bunch of you are getting it, and you're like, oh yeah, that is Moses. Absolutely. So Moses is always in the background as we move through Matthew's gospel because Matthew was a pious Jew. And for pious Jews, they have this strong affection for Moses. Moses in the Jewish tradition is always called our rabbi, you know, Rabboni, um, the rabbi of all of us. And um, so he's the first and the greatest of the rabbis. And what M Matthew is at pains to show is that Jesus is one greater than Moses, that he has come to take up Moses's mantle, but then go even beyond Moses himself, not taking any way, anything away from Moses. We love him, but Moses himself looked forward to a better day. He spoke of a better covenant 
in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, a covenant that would involve the circumcision of the heart rather than a circumcision of the body. And we know, of course, that that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Moses always in the background. And then the body of the Gospel of Matthew is broken into five sections. And uh, since ancient times, this has been recognized and it's been thought these are probably five new books of Jesus, the new Moses. Famously, Moses wrote five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we get five kind of booklets in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to uh, sketch in the first one on the left side of our screen. We're going to draw a little stick figure of our Lord. And in his right hand, we're going to put him holding a scroll. Okay, and this scroll is going to represent his first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. And then his left hand is going to be upraised, making a point. He's teaching here. He's in a teaching mode. And then we're going to give him a crown, and the crown is emblematic of his royalty. He's the son of David. And then the halo is representative of his divinity. He's also the son of God. And for this first sermon that he delivers in the Gospel of Matthew, he is standing on a mountaintop, and this is the Mount of Beatitudes. And uh, so this is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount concludes the first section of Matthew, which is Matthew 3 through 7. Matthew's chapters uh, 3 and 4 are the deeds and miracles of our Lord, and then Matthew 5 through 7 is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, some people get the Beatitudes confused with the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, but they are not the extent of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5 begins uh, with our Lord saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to pronounce blessings on, on other, uh, you know, on the meek and the merciful, etc. We know it well. Uh, but then his sermon continues all the way to the end of Matthew 7, and it concludes with Jesus saying, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And Jesus said that with a little smile and a wink, because let's think about it, brothers and sisters, who was the wisest man in Israel's history, who built the biggest house ever built in Israelite civilization on a huge rock in the capital city. And of course, that's Solomon, right? So if we had a time to go into this, we'd talk about how the Sermon on the Mount is all about how to be a kingdom of citizen. It's, it's got kingdom themes from the beginning to the end. The first beatitude is, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom, right? And then this final parable about putting it into practice, and you're going to be like Solomon, who was the greatest king, you know, that's a royal reference at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's all about how to be kings. And um, brothers and sisters, you know, we're in Lent, and the three pillars of Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, are from the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are really ways to be king. Uh, if you look in Deuteronomy 17, verses 15 and following, it gives Moses' laws for the king. And what you find there is that the king was forbidden to give in to physical pleasure. He was forbidden to give in to the desire for wealth. 
and he was forbidden to give into his pride and ego and, and become a swaggering king with a huge standing army. And that's related to uh, the three practices of Lent, because uh, in Lent, we learn to not give in to physical pleasure, and that's called fasting. And we learn to not give in to our lust for wealth, and that's called almsgiving. And we learn humility through humbling ourselves in prayer, because the essential feature of prayer is to uh, acknowledge that God is God and we are not, you know, to learn our humility and to express our dependence on God. It's a fundamental disposition of prayer. So anyway, so that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, which is really about how to be royalty, how to be royalty in the kingdom. And that's the uh, first uh, section of Matthew, and that's our Lord's first sermon. All of these sections of Matthew, these little books of the new Moses, um, conclude with a sermon. So the second one, we're going to draw two scrolls. We're not going to draw our Lord for a second time. We'll just put two scrolls to represent the second sermon now. That is in the second section of Matthew, which is Matthew 8 through 10. Matthew 8 and 9 are the deeds and miracles of our Lord. Matthew 10 is a sermon. It is what we call the mission sermon. It's where Jesus sends out the 12 over the house of Israel, and he tells them, don't take a second cloak, don't take an extra staff, eat what is set before you. If they don't receive your message, shake the dust off your feet as you leave. We're very familiar with that passage. We've heard it many times, even if we don't know that it's contained in Matthew chapter 10. But we call that the mission sermon. It's God's uh, Jesus's fundamental instruction on how to do mission work, because the kingdom is missionary in nature. And the third sermon of our Lord in the Gospel of Matthew is his mercy, I'm sorry, his mystery sermon, getting ahead of myself. And the mystery sermon, which is Matthew 13, concludes the third book of the new Moses. Matthew 11 and 12 are the deeds and miracles of our Lord. And then Matthew chapter 13 is the third sermon of Jesus in this gospel. And the theme of this sermon is the mystery of the kingdom. And this sermon is very important for us as Catholics. We're going to come back and talk about this tomorrow night because we're not going to have time to explore it all today. But um, just as a little spoiler for tomorrow night, uh, all of these, Jesus tells seven parables in the mystery sermon, seven parables that are like, uh, you know, the kingdom is like a net which is thrown into the sea and brings forth good and bad fish. The kingdom is like a field planted with weeds and wheat. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is like a yeast that works its way through the dough. All of these parables are about the church, okay? And typically about the church militant. That is to say the church in this world which often starts off in a new country, very small and contemptible, but then grows and becomes a source of life for the whole nation where it's taken root. The, the church, which has both rascals and righteous, both sinners and saints within it, which sometimes scandalizes people, but Jesus tells us it's going to be like this. So we're going to come back to this tomorrow and talk about how important those parables are to us specifically as Catholics I mean, Protestants don't even get 
the depth of those parables because Protestants don't believe in a visible church. But we do believe that the church is visible. And these, these parables will help us understand the church and help us keep from getting scandalized by how the church sometimes looks so weak, how the church sometimes looks like it's got so many rascals in it, etc. We could fit, we could very greatly err by failing to see that the church is the kingdom. And so to prevent us from making an error like that, Jesus gives us these wonderful parables to help us recognize the church as the kingdom in Matthew 13. So that's the mysterious nature of the kingdom. The fourth sermon in the Gospel of Matthew by our Lord, we're going to draw four scrolls now, is the mercy sermon. So this concludes the fourth section, Matthew 14 through 18. Chapter 18 um, is the concluding sermon. And this sermon is on the theme of mercy, which is one of the characteristics of the kingdom. This is the sermon where Jesus uh, tells Peter, don't forgive just seven times, but 77 times. Uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus um, tells, uh, as I said, Peter, forgive 77 times. Also, he gives instructions. If someone offends you, go to your brother and correct them in person. If he doesn't listen, take another along. That's called fraternal correction. Very important in the church. Uh, that's one of only two times that the word church actually appears in Matthew's gospel. Maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow night as well. Why does, you know, what does the church mean when Matthew uses it, uh, uses that term? And, uh, and it's also, Matthew 18 is also where our Lord tells the famous parable of the unmerciful servant. Remember, the guy's forgiven a million dollars from the king, and then he goes out and chokes this guy, he owes him like 10 bucks, you know? That, uh, that parable is only found in Matthew, and it's only found in Matthew chapter 18. And then the final sermon of Jesus, the new Moses, the fifth and final, is uh, in Matthew 19 through 25, um, well, especially, well, the 19 through 22 are deeds and miracles, etc. And then uh, 23 through 25 is the sermon. And we call it the Mount of Olives sermon. Uh, also sometimes called the eschatological discourse. Eschatological, big, big term that means end times. And uh, it's where Jesus teaches on the end of the kingdom. Uh, how the uh, the kingdom will be vindicated and the final judgment and uh, the kingdom will be purified and um, all those who don't belong to the kingdom will be driven out and the kingdom uh, will uh, be whole and complete. And so you see the beautiful balance. You know, I've, I've tried to represent the balance of the Gospel of Matthew in this drawing you know, a, a, a prologue and an epilogue that are Christmas and Easter. And then the two longest discourses of our Lord are, are bookends that are both delivered on mountaintops at the at the ends of the, the two ends of this gospel. And then you have this progression of mission work and the mysterious nature of the kingdom and the merciful nature of the kingdom. You know, so it develops it's very systematic, very thematic. Um you know, makes for great teaching. So this is the beauty of what Matthew has produced for us. So we're going to, you know, close it off right there. We'll that's a good place to end with uh, that little drawing of Matthew's gospel. And there's some more things that we can talk about 
about the gospel. We'll probably lead off with those issues uh, tomorrow night as we look at unique parables, unique teachings, and unique um, historical episodes that Matthew uh, describes. And then we'll go into looking at how it's used in year A. But this is a good way to end. Just to sum up, this is, uh, we could call it the royal gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God. They're really one and the same thing in the person of Jesus, who's both son of God and son of David. And so as he's building the kingdom of God, it also looks like and has features that resemble the ancient kingdom of David that we saw in the Old Testament. And then in the final scene of the gospel, we see Jesus says, the great king, the king of heaven and earth, who commissions his apostles to go out as royal princes. And, and we are royalty as well, because we share in Christ's royalty. If you read in the Catechism 900 through 909, it talks about how through our baptism, we share in Christ's priesthood, his royalty, and his prophethood. All those things are true of us. So this is, this is Matthew's gospel. It's so rich. There's so much more that we have to do, but that's why we have two more nights of, uh, of this mission. So I'll wrap it up there, and then cut, let's open it up for questions, and I'd be delighted to field whatever questions folks have. Wonderful. Excellent. Thank you so much, doctor, for uh, another enlightening session. I've, uh, I, I really appreciate your repeated uh, just reminders, you know, that if we didn't have this gospel, how much would be lost to us. And of course, you know, the church would preserve important, uh, you know, key doctrines through, through tradition, but those little details that we latch on to, um, we, we, we truly are indebted uh, to him. And it's, it's a great gift to us that we, uh, that we can give thanks to God for. So thanks for walking us through uh, that visual diagram. I think that's a great way to present it. People can pick up the book and hold that in their minds uh, as they're going through. It's kind of a nice visual table of contents and, or, or a map, you know, you are here in relation to everything else in there. It's great. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, just to head one off at the pass here, a number of you asking for that drawing to be available. We'll post these slides uh, as well on that uh, on the event page, so you can refer to them uh, afterwards. All right, let's start with this one from uh, from Shar, uh, asking: Since there was a prophecy that the Messiah would come from the branch, why was it a saying that uh, you know can anything good come from Nazareth? Sure. Well, um, Nazareth was not a historical town uh, in Israel's history. Um, the, uh, the best explanation for the origin of Nazareth comes from, uh, in my opinion, the Benedictine uh, biblical scholar and archaeologist of happy memory, uh, Bargel Pixner, uh, very well known to people that uh, did pilgrimages to Israel in the, in the 80s, 90s, and so on, because he was a fixture at some of the Benedictine sites uh, at the Holy Land. But uh, Father Pixner uh, argues that uh, the town of Nazareth was settled by uh, descendants of the royal house who came back from Babylonian exile, but did not want to settle down near Jerusalem. Why not? Well, because Jerusalem was very politically charged. Look at what happened to the the uh, royal the the descendants of the royal house who who resettled Bethlehem, for example. Um, we they end up suffering through the massacre of the innocents, right? And uh, what the massacre of the innocents is, is th that's what happens when you have royal blood, but somebody else is on the throne, you are considered a threat, see? 
So some of the descendants of David realized that. And so they they went up to Galilee. And uh, I've, I've said this many times. Maybe I even said it last night. I can't remember. But the Galilee region, brothers and sisters, is the West Virginia of uh, Israel. Okay. It's a place where you can go up and get into a holler and get off the grid. You know, I live across the river from West Virginia. A holler is a valley. That's what we call them around here. I, I live next to a holler myself. So, you know, you, you go up in these river valleys and like nobody can find you. And that's what Nazareth was like. You, you get off the grid. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It's agricultural up there. And, and so the, these, these Davidides were, were, were hiding out up there. But the way they named their town, uh, you know, kept alive this memory that, uh, that from them was going to come a savior figure. So they're proud of their royal heritage, even if they're kind of lying low. And they call their name Branchton. There's another little town up in Galilee back in the first century that was called Kochava, which means uh, star. Um, town of the star. And that's because likewise, in, in Numbers 25, there's a prophecy about a star that will arise out of Jacob. And it's a, a messianic prophecy. So these uh, descendants of the royal house, you know, were kind of keeping keeping that hope of the Messiah alive in the way that they named their little villages when they resettled after the exile. And, um, and that's why you have them there as we open up in the Gospel of Matthew. That's great. Thank you. Uh, Andrew here on screen. Go ahead. Good evening. Um, there's a question I was I was really curious about when you mentioned, um, Doctor, uh, the eschatological end times in um, Matthew 19 to 25. My question is: Is what's the difference between with with the Protestant Protestant belief or theology? of the end times as with that of the Catholic and Orthodox side? Yeah, Catholic and Orthodox um, teaching on the end times is simpler than, uh, than some Protestant views. Now, this is not uh, historic Protestantism. If you go back to Calvin and Luther, who founded the two major streams from the Reformation, you know, Lutheranism and Calvinism, uh, Calvin and Luther did not differ significantly from the Catholic Church on the teaching of the end times. However, in the late 1700s and then especially in the 1800s, there was a fervor of end time speculation and a lot of Protestant and like quasi Protestant groups like uh, the Mormons, the Seventh day Adventists, etc., all rose in the 1800s. And um, the issue there for a lot of them was the teaching on the end times. Uh, what was particularly influential in English-speaking Protestantism was uh, a 19th century figure by the name of uh, John Nelson Darby. And uh, Darby actually belonged to a group called the Plymouth Brethren. They were very, um, what we call a low church Protestant, very um, kind of like no liturgy, uh, very little formality. That's what we mean by low church. And Darby uh, is the one who developed this idea of the rapture, okay? And um, that idea that, uh, you know, Christians would be snatched up, and then, then the tribulation would happen, and then the second coming. 
And that was a novelty that was and is a novelty within the history of Christianity that's of very recent origin. And Darby was very influential over a, an American Bible scholar named C.I. Schofield. And Schofield wrote a famous study Bible called the Schofield Study Bible. And it was widely used in America. And Schofield was a disciple of Darby. And he taught the rapture in the study notes in this study Bible. And that spread widely through American Protestantism across denominational lines among Baptists and Methodists as well. And so that's why we get the Left Behind series, you know, Tim LaHaye and all this. It's, it all goes back to Darby. But in, in the bigger picture, very recent uh, within the church. But Catholic and Orthodox teaching in the end times is fairly simple. Um, before the second coming, there is going to be an intense tribulation where Satan is going to be, you know, as it were, unleashed or allowed greater reign uh, to work his uh, evil. And um, it's going to be a time of purification for true Christians. And there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen that could shake or scandalize our faith. Uh, but God will put a limit on how long this goes on. And then there will be the second coming of Christ, which will be seen by all. There's not going to be secret comings, you know, or surreptitious comings or whatever. There's going to be a final coming of Christ and then the last judgment and uh, the end of this world and, you know, transition to the world to come. So that's, you know, kind of very simple, basic, fundamental, classic, Orthodox and uh, Catholic teaching on the end times. And these more elaborate theories are a relatively recent uh, creation within the history of the church. Dr. Mike and a number of others, you know, kind of echoing him, uh, ask if you could explain how we're to understand the claims of, you know, various sources, Q uh, and, and Mark, um, as sources of Matthew, if, if Matthew was supposed to be the first that was written. I mean, a number of people asking about Mark specifically, right, if he drew for Mark you know, how does that work time-wise? So um, uh, there's, well, I'll try to keep this simple. Um, there's several theories about how the Gospels were composed, and, and the Church does not take a specific position on this question, although some of the theories are endorsed by the Church Fathers, and so they have more of the weight of tradition behind them. Um, but uh, there, there are two principles that are essentially universal in the Church Fathers. And Leo XIII, in his first encyclical on Scripture, well, the first encyclical by any pope specifically just on Scripture, which was Providentissimus Deus in 1893, Leo XIII said that there are three principles of interpretation that are infallible, and those are the analogy of faith, explicit magisterial statement of interpretation, and then um, the universal consensus of the fathers. And the fathers did not express consensus about very many things, but one thing that they were all in agreement about was that Matthew wrote first and that Mark was the uh, secretary of Peter, so to speak, or the one who recorded Peter's preaching and Peter's gospel. So whatever theory of the gospel's composition that we have, it needs to respect those two facts, because those are two things that we just know because they're passed down by capital T tradition. So we know that Matthew wrote first, and we know that 
Mark was uh, the the uh, as it were the secretary of Peter, the one who wrote down uh, Peter's preaching. So, how how can you reconcile that? Uh, Saint Augustine's Saint Augustine's theory of the gospel composition was that Matthew wrote first, and then Mark created a kind of a synopsis of Matthew, a shorter version of Matthew that explains why they have so much in common. And then write, Luke writes later using both of them. But what Matthew never explained was, how does that work with Mark being the one who writes writes down Peter's preaching? Okay, uh, it's not clearly explained in, in Augustine's writing, so that's a little question mark. Um, my personal theory of, of keeping, of respecting these different principles is that Matthew was the first to publish a gospel, but he made use of Mark's notes. I think that Mark was compiling the preaching of Peter during pre Peter's career. And like I said in, in the talk, is Matthew's like, hey, Mark, you know, can I borrow? And why would, why would Matthew do that when Matthew was an eyewitness himself? Well, yeah, Matthew was an eyewitness, but Peter's the prince of the apostles. He's the pope, right? And, um, and so you respect that. And even today, you know, the Pope will release an encyclical, and then after a couple of months, diocesan bishops will release pastoral letters that are based on the Pope's encyclical, right? So I think that Matthew respected Peter's preaching, and, and he takes Mark's notes of Peter's account, and then, as I see it, he combines it with his unique material, and he's the first to publish. And then later... Mark publishes his own notes, you know, and but when you look at the reason I say this is that when you look at the relationship between Mark and Matthew, uh, I think it often looks like uh, Matthew's using Mark rather than the other way around. You know, a lot of scholars have observed that, and I, I think there, I think there's legitimate reasons why they think that it looks like Matthew's using using Mark. Um, so that's that's how I keep those uh, those things in in uh, you know um, uh, how I respect those patristic principles that Mark represents Peter and Matthew writes first. Other scholars have um, argued other things. Um, a, a scholar that I respect a lot named F. F. Bruce says that uh, Matthew writes. Uh, um, I'm sorry that that Mark writes down and publishes Peter's preaching. And then this mysterious Q document that uh, that scholars talk about, um, that's actually the early form of Matthew's gospel. It's like an early collection of Jesus' teaching that Matthew produced. And uh, Luke used both Mark and this early form of Matthew. And then later, Matthew worked up uh, a larger gospel based on Mark and his own teaching and then some additional sources. So... I want to respect our time, so I could talk about this all night. Uh, this is like my my uh, New Testament course in college was basically just about this question for 14 weeks. It was like I got really <laughs> sick of it. I don't want to go into it that far. Okay, let's take another question. Uh, David here on screen. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, Doctor. Uh, question on um, Jesus and its relation to the Pharisees and to some extent the Sadducees. I mean, I understand that he is uh, teaching to the Jewish tradition. He's in some sense fulfilling that tradition, but at the same time, he is being trapped and ultimately 
is seems to be a thorn in the side of the Pharisees. So there's some contradictions, especially if you know your point about putting faith into action, and you know the Pharisees seem to be saying you've got to follow these actions to be a good Jew, but yet Jesus is taking it a step further. Maybe that's an innocent question, but could you give a little context on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So the Sadducees were kind of religious professionals who were cynical. Um, maybe you've known people that work for church institutions or even the church itself that are in a paid position and they've kind of lost their faith. Um, I've run into people like that. That was basically the Sadducees. They had highly paid positions as priests in the temple, but, uh, but they had very little faith uh, themselves, and yet they had to keep up appearances in order to keep their position. So that's, that's who the Sadducees were. The Pharisees were different. The Pharisees were not paid temple professionals. They were a, a, move, a scholarly movement of uh, religious teachers um, who were trying to you know, raise the bar in terms of Jewish practice and get all the Jews to live by a higher level of uh, ritual purity and obedience to the laws of Moses. Uh, it's often thought that, you know, people often have this idea that the Pharisees were like Puritans and that they were really morally scrupulous and that they were very like rigid moral people and that Jesus was trying to get them to loosen up. That's not it. They were not actually highly moral. Okay. They were not like, um, you know, super scrupulous about doing the right thing. The problem with the Pharisees and the, the reason why Jesus criticizes them is because they were experts at using religious law to create loopholes that they could get out of from whenever actually following the law might be painful or involve a sacrifice on their part, okay? So they were experts at rationalizing. They were like canon lawyers that can think of a way for you to you know, get out of your marriage or I don't know what, you know, uh, whatever it is, like release you from your obligations. And so they had all these ways of rationalizing so they would not have to make sacrifices to follow the law of Moses, especially the moral laws. And Jesus also criticized them for having the wrong hierarchical ordering of the laws. They would put laws that were really lesser above laws that were greater. Like they would put, you know, certain ritual observance above, you know, saving a life or acts of mercy. And Jesus is like, that's wrong. That's not just, you know, that's wrong legally. Okay. That's like, if you do that, you're a bad lawyer. Okay. Bad lawyers, bad judges put lesser stuff above greater, you know, and give you a speeding ticket when you were trying to save a guy who was bleeding out in your back seat to get him to the hospital, you know? The wise judge is like, okay, you had a moral reprisal, we're, we're gonna waive that ticket. That's, that's good law. That's not just, you know, being a, a nice human being, that's actually good law to observe more fundamental principles. So you see what I'm saying? Jesus is, they, 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 uh, they wanted to be good lawyers, but they actually weren't because they got the ordering of the laws wrong. And Jesus criticizes them that for that and for also, you know, creating loopholes to get out of, you know, really having to give of self and make self-sacrifice uh, for others.
Thank you, Doctor. That is an excellent explanation, you know, to give us a principle to take into our reading of Matthew, you know, beyond this, you know, anytime we see an episode now, you know, can be can be having that in the background. That's fantastic. But let's end with one more question, if you have time, Doctor, uh, from Joanne here. She is asking about Jesus's, uh, uh, you talked about um, the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. She writes, if Jesus is considered a descendant of the royal throne directly because of Joseph, if, and Joseph would have been the one on the throne. Why do the Gospels in other places say things to the effect of, you know, isn't he just the carpenter's son? Uh, would would others not have known that or, or realized what he was saying? Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, the, the close, th- those who were close to St. Joseph and his family knew, and they kept that genealogical record. But this was not something that, uh, you know, you just went out in the streets and proclaimed. Again, why is that? It's because you're a liability, okay? You're, you're, you know, if you go public with this knowledge, um, then, um, you know, what's going to happen to you is like what happened to those dozen or so poor kids in Bethlehem with the slaughter of the innocents. Herod is going to come and execute you because you pose a political threat. The the Herods who are on the throne, by the way, let me explain this. Herod the Great, who was the founder of the Herodian dynasty, and his descendants, who all were also Herods of various kinds, you know, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip and all this, you know, Herods, Herods, Herods. Um, The Herods uh, were not even fully Jewish, okay? Herod had a Jewish mother and a uh, an an Edomite father, you know, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, okay? And so he was only half Jewish on his mom's side, but he married into the Maccabees. Remember, the Maccabees were Levites. They never had the, the blood of David in their in their veins either. And so even the Maccabees were kind of imposter kings. But anyway, Herod married into the Maccabee family, and then later in a period of turmoil, he sailed to Rome and got the Roman Senate to appoint him king. And he sailed back to Israel with a couple of Roman legions and marched up to Jerusalem and took over by force. And he was a good administrator and he was a, he was a fabulous architect. Uh, he was great for the economy. You know, remember Bill Clinton and it's the economy, stupid? You know, so he was a lot like Clinton in that he was good for the economy and a disaster, it was a train wreck, you know, in his personal life. And to, but much, you know, he makes Bill Clinton look like a like a saint by comparison, because Herod slaughtered uh, a lot of his wives and his his sons. In fact, Augustus Caesar himself uh, made a quip. He said, "I would rather be Herod's pig than his son, because Herod wouldn't eat pigs because he observed kosher, but." He would kill his sons, and and he killed actually most of them. Uh, sadly, it's a really uh, a grisly story. But anyway, um, so the Herods were imposters, and that's what's going on. So that's where that's where the Herods come from. They're fakes, you know. They're fakes, and and the real king is Saint Joseph. But and that was probably known by key people in the community, and you know the elders of Nazareth were probably aware of this, and uh, and and and. Uh, Joseph's, you know, close family members and stuff like that. But again, for political reasons, this is not something that they, you know, put up a sign and said, hey, this is the this is the hut where the royal heir lives. <laughs> okay. 
Yes, he's not going to live long if they do that. All right. Makes sense. Excellent. Well, we will wrap it up there. Thank you, doctor, for your time this evening with us. Could you uh, close this session in prayer tonight? Let's pray together in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've taught us tonight through uh, the words of St. Matthew. Uh, we ask for his intercessions, that he would pray for us, uh, that our Lenten journey may be uh, successful, and that we may truly draw closer to the Lord during this Lent, that we would hear the Lord calling us away from whatever our tax collecting booth might be, whatever it is that distracts us from fidelity to Christ in our life, and that like St. Matthew, we'd leave everything behind and follow the Lord Jesus in fidelity. Lord Jesus, may this be the case, we pray this evening. We thank you for this evening, and we pray all of this in your name and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.